Are you ready to trace your Irish ancestors, but you're not sure where to start? In today's podcast, you're going to learn all the tips you need, as well as find out about a resource in Dublin you may not have known about. Today's podcast is brought to you by Ireland Chauffeur Travel, the driver guide company I use and recommend in Ireland. I recommend Ireland Chauffeur Travel for their high standards of professionalism, their knowledgeable and friendly driver guides, and their exceptionally comfortable vehicles. Ireland Chauffeur Travel will work with you to plan an Ireland vacation that fits your interests, travel goals, and budget. They can even book your accommodations, attractions, and dining. Learn more about Ireland Chauffeur Travel in episode 84 of the Traveling in Ireland podcast. And don't forget to use my exclusive savings code IRFV2020 when you make your reservation. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me here on the Traveling in Ireland podcast. Today, I am coming to you live from Dublin. I am sitting in the CHQ building, which if you are planning your Ireland vacation and are stopping in Dublin, you probably have heard of as the location for the Epic Irish Emigration Museum. Now, the Irish Family History Center is a part of the museum in a way. It has been um, in existence longer than the Epic Museum, but they have partnered together to provide a really thorough experience for anybody who is interested in Irish genealogy and history. So today I am joined by Declan Brady, who is a consultant, genealogist, and historian at the Irish Family History Center. Declan, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate you sitting down with me. Thank you very much. Now, tell me a little bit about the Irish Family History Center and what it does and the the connection between it and the Immigration Museum, that's a new partnership. Well, the Irish Family History Centre has been in operation for a number of years and we have operated a research service to clients on a commission basis. But we were asked by EPIC, the Diaspora and Immigration Museum, to partner them and offer a service as a one-stop shop where people could drop in and get advice, but also experience researching their ancestors online. Now, the big opportunities that are there today in terms of the amount of records that are gone online are also probably the biggest challenge in that there is just way too much. So if somebody comes in to us for a fee of €12.50, they can have unfettered access to all of the paywall sites. So Find My Past, which has the uh, highest number of Irish records, uh, the greatest number of Irish records and ancestry and roots Ireland, as well as the free government and state sites that we have here, and probably the, uh, let's say, the grandmother or grandfather of all the sites, Family Search, which is the Church of Latter-day Saints, which is probably the easiest and most functional in terms of when you begin your online searching. But the important thing to remember is that there are techniques and ways to search. There are methodologies that need to be followed, uh, and there are... Uh, you always have to bear in mind that not everything is online. So if you can't find something, it really only means you're not looking in the place 
where it might be. You might be looking in the wrong place or it just might not be there. We also offer a private consultation for 45 euros for half an hour or 85 euros for an hour. And we also offer that by Skype. I've had people who have contacted me from Missouri, from Iowa, from Michigan, and they will spend an hour with me from the comfort of their own home on Skype. We go through their records. We use a dual screen. They can see what I'm looking at. Uh, I can see them. They can see me. And then they do a certain amount of research. And those people who come to Ireland the following week, then fully prepared for what they need to look for in Ireland. We reprise what we've done. Uh, we have a second consultation. We dig in a little bit deeper. And I have actually found people, the homestead, the land, the building where their ancestors were living when they left Ireland, right down to being able to identify this building with this number of windows, this cow shed at the back, that's where they were. So sometimes you can get that. Sometimes we get people right back to uh, 1600s. I think the earliest I've managed to get an American back uh, is to around 1680 in Derry. In other cases, we get people it's not as not as, as far back as more recent and there's more information available. Your research services and your expert advice are obviously so helpful for somebody who is looking to find their past, to find where people come from and maybe even connect with, with those who, you know, the ancestors of those who were left behind. So when people are coming in to visit and to meet with a genealogist, what can they expect from that experience? What should they plan to maybe bring to it and what are they going well, to well, come away with? Bring whatever information you have. Bring whatever documentation you have. We can cater for people with absolutely nothing. Our starting point is usually for Americans 1940, because the last uh, census that was taken that is available online is 1940. The 1930 federal census in the States is one of the better censuses, because it is the only census that has been taken after Irish independence, that differentiates between Northern Ireland and the Irish Free State, which allows you to bring something down to a point of being able to split the two of them. And the other census just says Ireland. I had one guy in one time with me. He was only recently married, uh, a young guy, and the only information he had was that his grandfather was head coach of the Chicago Bears in the 1960s. <laughs> we found him in a newspaper, and using that, we got him back to his birth in 1940. We got the family back to... It was actually Monroe County, uh, Missouri, where one of his ancestors was a county judge. Once we had that piece of information that he was a county judge, we then looked at judiciary records, newspaper records in the States, and we got them the whole way back to a document in 1765 where one of those ancestors had fought in the Indian Wars and was paid in land. And the land grant was signed by Thomas Jefferson. So we got that information within an hour. That's a perfect scenario because the records happen to be there. In other cases, it's we don't have the records, they're not online, but this is where they are and this is where you might have to look. So if somebody comes and they have a certain amount of information, the important thing is to have it uh, in terms of documentation, number one. So whether it's actual census records, actual births, marriages, deaths, wills, whatever you have, bring a copy of them. Don't bring the original. Never bring the original because accidents can happen and they can be lost and they, they are valuable documents. So bring that information. Uh, be very, very careful of information that's secondhand. Any kind of family trees or ancestry trees that you might have that don't have documentation backup, you need to be wary of because 
they are what somebody else has said is the truth or what somebody else has said is the facts. You need to make sure that you have the facts yourself. And there are so many circumstantial matches that might be out there that could be just slightly different. You could have, for instance, in Ireland, an uncle and a nephew, same name, only a year age and their difference. How do you know which one is the right one? Exactly. So this is where the documentation and the other information in the documentation, the other people in the documentation, is hugely, is hugely important. There are so many Patrick Ryans, Patrick Kellys, John Smiths around the world in clusters that knowing which one is yours uh, is hugely important. Having that information and having an open mind in terms of accepting that not everything is, on, is online, not everything is where you might be looking for it, that there, there could be other information there. The other thing, particularly people coming from the States, do not underestimate the quality and quantity of the records that are in the United States relating to or referencing Ireland. If you get to the high watermark, my ancestor was Patrick Kelly. He came from Ireland in 1847 during the famine. That's the high watermark. That's the furthest you've got to. But there might not be a next step that's obvious in Ireland. But Patrick Kelly's death record, for instance, in the 1870s, the 1880s in Iowa, will ask the question of the informant to the death. Where was he born? And that might say exactly where he's born. Or who were his parents and where were they born? Now, even if it doesn't say where the parents are born, and it only says Ireland, it still might give the exact parents' names. If you're looking for Patrick Kelly, whose father is William Kelly and whose mother is Bridget O'Reilly, with three people on the same record, it narrows down the opportunity of finding it. So all of that information in the States, among the best information, best records in the States, are records like uh, citizenship applications. They're very, very detailed. Not all states have them online. Some of them you'd have to go to the state archive. But the question will be asked, when did somebody arrive in the States? Where were they born? Where did they come from? Right down to even what vessel did they come on? So all of that information can be in the States. So anything like that that you can find before you start looking in Ireland can help you qualify the information that you're looking for here, which then helps. So speaking as someone who has records, you know, records back to a certain point that actually are before the famine, is there a point where you just have to say, we're not going to find that information? Or is there always a place to, another place to look? There's always another place to look. In Ireland, there are two sets of records we have uh, that are freely available online and are somewhat unique. We have lost a lot of our census records through a fire in the Civil War in 1922 in the Public Record Office. The original census documents from 1821 to 1851 were lost. The documents from the original documents from 1861 to 1891 were destroyed by the authorities because they had got the information they needed from them and they didn't transcribe them. But we do have 1901 and 1911 in full as original documents that have been imaged uh, and put online and are available on the National Archive Census uh, website. We also have very detailed and extensive birth, marriage and death civil registration records from 1864. Now, there is uh, an embargo on 100 years for births, on 75 years for marriages and 50 years for deaths. But that means that the actual records are available online up to currently around 1918-1919 for births, 1943-44 for marriages, and 67-68 for deaths. Before that period of 1864, 
we rely on a combination of church records, Catholic, predominantly Catholic and uh, Church of Ireland, and on land records. Now, we have probably the most extensive land survey that was undertaken in the 19th century, which was Griffith's valuation, which was designed to uh, put a value on the productivity of land in order to strike a rate for uh, the upkeep of the Poor Laws and the Poor Law Union Act of 1838. That captures between 85 and 90% of all occupants. And the importance is it's not landowners, it's occupants. Now, those, a lot of those that aren't captured are people like soldiers, people like uh, teachers, policemen, and then the lower levels of society. But where we don't have those you can look within an area for somebody who may be related. So those records, which were taken between 1847 and 1864, are very, very detailed, very, very extensive, and are backed up by maps of the period. So you can find the actual uh, location. Now, they're based on townlands, a number of townlands, which are, are the smallest unit of administration, form a parish, and a number of parishes form, uh, civil parishes form a county. Every five to eight years after that, another survey was taken to see if the occupants could ch had changed. And those records are in the valuation office uh, as uh, revision books of Griffith's valuation or cancelled books where they then replace them. There's also a set of records going back to the 1820s, which relate to the initial valuations that were undertaken and they have often different details. Now one of the most important pieces of information uh, in terms of what you said Jody can you go back further? Yes you can but you don't know what you might find. Once you identify for any tenant who the landlord is, the landlord and his estate records if they survive may have details. We have to remember and this is where the context of history becomes important and understanding the local history. Somebody who is a smallholder may not have much written about them. Somebody who is living in the big house and owns thousands of acres is more likely to have something written about them. They're going to be the people who are involved as members of parliament, as judges, as justices of the peace, as members of the grand jury, as poor law guardians. They're going to be in the newspapers. There's going to be books written about them. But more importantly, their business as leasing land was exactly that, a business. So they often have books of accounts and they have records. So when you go back that far, you may find something that is in it. The Fitzwilliam estate, for instance, in Wicklow, an extensive estate, used to have a party every year for the estate workers and the tenants. They still have the records of who attended, how much they drank, how many drinks they got, even what they ate. They would have records in relation of how much turf was allowed. So you have people who we may think were from uh, the lower strata of society, but they are recorded as employees or tenants or suppliers of the bigger estates. So we can always find some sort of information. Even when, and I, I mentioned in terms of what is there in the States, when you look at that historical context, if you take somebody in Iowa or somebody in Nebraska or somebody in Wisconsin in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, well, what's happening in Iowa or Wisconsin or Nebraska at that time? Not a lot. <laughs> so anybody who was there is going to be written about. So I have read accounts from time to time of the history of 
a particular county, a particular township. The Kelly, the O'Reilly and the Murphy families were the first to clear the land just north of the river between the years 1870 and 1875. Kelly opened the first hotel in this little town. That's the type of information and Kelly came from County Tipperary or County Limerick or County Galway. That type of information is there. So when you get back that far, you're then looking at history and context. Military records have always been uh, very detailed and they have always tended to be able to fit in the gaps between it. Newspapers are another hugely rich source. Uh, You have street directories, you have voters' registers. So when you take your your core records of, of, say, civil registration, church records, census records, and land records, once you know where somebody is, roughly, you can get back a little bit further using all those other records, even institutional records, the records of the... the, uh, Poor law units, the records of the workhouse, testamentary records, uh, which which is wills. All of those records can fit something in. But local history is a huge, huge, huge source that helps us to identify beyond where something might be. That's really incredible. So you almost have to become a history detective and look at not only... I, I think that the problem that at least I have encountered is that you have the narrow focus. You kind of have the blinders on of that one person that you're searching for. And you don't widen those blinders to the family group or the people group or the area group that they're in, which it seems can really offer a lot of information. A lot of it comes down to if I can't find somebody in a record... Who else could be in their record? So when you're working back and you look at some of the records, let's just take a marriage. Who is listed in a marriage record? Well, you have the two participants. You have the bride and groom. You also have their parents. Now, some of the records will only give the father. Some of them will the Catholic Church records. The later ones from the 1860s on will give the father and the mother. You also have the two witnesses. If those witnesses have the same name, surname, they may be a sibling. If you identify that they're a sibling, so if I can't find, for instance, William Murphy, but I know that Patrick Murphy was the witness at his marriage, well then there's a good chance that Patrick Murphy might be his brother. If they're brothers, they'll have the same father. You then go looking like that. Always find somebody else who could be in the record. And then you look for siblings and you go back. You also say, if you have a marriage and you have one name as Let's take Kelly, which is the most common name in Ireland in some of the records in the 19th century. It mightn't necessarily be the most common name today, but was then. We have a Kelly, and we don't know which Kelly we're looking at. But we know that that Kelly married somebody with a relatively unusual name. Let's say Montague. Well, for a female called Montague and a man called Kelly to meet in the 1830s or 1840s, they have to be living near each other. So then you're looking for people that are living probably less than three to five to eight miles away. If somebody is a hundred miles away, that's not a match because they don't have the opportunity to reach each other. So that's where sometimes common sense comes into it. We have a tendency sometimes when we're looking at genealogy or we're looking at older documents to have a view of the world in the past as black and white because that's what we've seen in photographs, that's what we've seen in cinema. No, it wasn't black and white. It was in full colour. People were real. People lived and had the same motivations and the same emotions as we have. So if you think of why did they do certain things, that always helps. The challenges, as I said earlier, 
are that we have so much information now available at our fingertips. Ten years ago, one had to go to a repository, start at the beginning of a register and work all the way through it. Now we have so much information, we actually have to be more disciplined. We actually have to start thinking about what we're doing and how we're doing it. But again, when you look at, if there's, you identify an area, the local history of that area, what could the local libraries have there? What could the local archives have there? Could something be written about somebody? That then gives you, maybe not the answer, but might give you somewhere else that it might be worth looking. 1876, for instance, in the States, is a hugely important year in terms of publishing. It's the 100th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. It's also 10 years approximately after the Civil War. The Civil War is an implosion. It's brother against brother, good in the nation. We're all familiar with the horrors that uh, happened in the American Civil War and the numbers that were killed. What is far more glorious to be writing about than getting our independence and kicking the British out? So on the 100th anniversary, an awful lot of journeyman publishers, there was a boom in publishing in the 1870s, was also the advent of photography. So people like Matthew Brady had pioneered photography practice during the Civil War, but also brought it down in price. An awful lot of people went around in the US, we are writing a history of our township, our town, our county, going all the way back to Washington and Benjamin Franklin and uh, the founding fathers. We're going to write about it. You give us five dollars, we put two pages in for your family. The amount of really, really rich family histories that are in those books is huge. The in the United States, nearly all of the records make no reference to religion. In Ireland and England, they do because you have a sectarian history. But ethnicity is hugely important and people's origins in the US record. So the question is always asked. It's asked in the census, it's asked in death records, it's asked in uh, citizenship applications. Where were you born, either a state or a country, and where were your parents born? So that having one person in a record and their parents brings you back generation to generation. And because the US censuses go back to 1790, you can trace people back. Uh, very, very quickly, very, very easily. So if I was to give any advice to Americans, it's try and work hand in hand with what you have in the United States. And it's not always obvious the information that might be there and what you can get in Ireland. And they both complement each other. And in Ireland, then you get back that, that little bit further. That's incredible. So now we've kind of got the, you know, the basics for digging in and, and how to kind of begin and what to look for and, and to keep our, our mind open to the other possibilities. But what do you think are the biggest misconceptions about finding your genealogy in Ireland? Well, one of the biggest misconceptions was that all the records were born in the Civil War. They weren't. A lot of records were lost, but because records that you might use in other countries were lost in Ireland. We've had to be creative in terms of what we use, and we use a lot of census substitutes. For instance, on the Find My Past site, and the Irish Family History Centre would partner with Find My Past in terms of managing their records on the, uh, the Irish records on Find My Past. We have six and a half million dog license records. Now, on a dog license, they're not complete, but we've six and a half million. On a dog license, you have a name and address. You have the price, or the, the value of the license, and the breed and number of dogs. But every year after the license expires, local policeman will come, he'll knock on the door, and he'll say your license has to be renewed. It is a piece of paper that says somebody officially was living at this address at this time. Every single one of those records that's a document is 
effectively a census of sorts. It's something that says somebody was somewhere. Wills and testamentary records are exactly the same because they'll always give an address. One of the things in wills that we, we never know what we're going to find is the preamble to a will. I, Matthew Kelly, son of Andrew Kelly, who came to this great country of the United States in 1789. And often you can have a preamble that's a family history. And then they go on to say what should happen with whatever other chattels or properties they have. So that is, one of the misconceptions is that there aren't records. There are. The other misconception is always that if, if it's not online, I can't find it, it doesn't exist. No, it just means it's not there. It means that it is probably somewhere else. When you look at TV programs, you see the results. You see what comes at the end. You, it's, it's almost like the duck on the lake. The duck is quite graceful when he's going across the lake. You don't see how fast his legs are going. <laughs> the amount of work that's going on to get to that point. The other thing is that, and, and this is something I think hugely important, the self-satisfaction and the achievement of finding the information yourself for the first time, you, you can't put a value on that. It's very different to somebody doing it for you and giving it to you. So when you find a document with your ancestor in it, or you find on a map a location, the minute you find that, that's a magical, magical moment. Now, I often feel humbled and honoured that when I'm working with somebody, they let me so far into their private history that you have to always be conscious of what you're dealing with. You're dealing with people's lives, you're dealing with people's identities, you're dealing with people's heritage. So you have to let them engage properly and fully with what they're finding and it's not always easy sometimes we find things we didn't expect sometimes we find things that we never knew or we were told uh, something about it one of the other misconceptions that's always there is my great-grandmother lied about her age or they weren't very truthful they may not have known so i'm always very forgiving of people in the past because what age are you if you didn't have a birth record or you were illiterate you're the age you told you were so that's why it might be slightly out. Or sometimes you might find that there are children within a family that may not be uh, directly sons and daughters, but were treated as such. So I, one of the misconceptions is, is they weren't telling us the truth or they never recorded anything correctly. No, they may not have known any better. So they, they'd be a couple of the things that do come up. But being disciplined and going through one line at a time is also very, very important. And taking your notes down. Like, try to be as disciplined and organized. And actually, the old-fashioned way of drawing your tree on a piece of paper is the best way to question everything as you go along. Because if you type everything in to a template, the template will look right even if the information is wrong because it's well-organized, it's well-designed. But if you're drawing it and suddenly you find, well, she was the mother and she was 67. No, because 67-year-old women don't have children. Or they got married, she was 12. No, she wasn't 12 when she got married because she wouldn't have been allowed to get married at the age of 12. Now, you might not pick that up if you're putting information into a template in discrete packages. But if you're drawing the tree yourself, and then the relationships will suddenly come to you like a eureka moment because you're drawing the tree and you're engaging with it. So that would be one of the techniques that I would always advise people to draw and question as you go along. Because when you can get it into your head, the type of relationships that were there. The last one in terms of, and not so much of a misconception, but something that's often overlooked, a lot of people 
that leave Ireland and end up in the United States do not go directly to the United States. The amount of migration through Canada is highly significant, particularly St. Lawrence and Quebec. It is cheaper to go to Canada because the journey is shorter, the journey is safer. If it's shorter, the crew don't have to be paid as much. If it's shorter as well, the amount of food that you have to provide for the passengers is less. People disembark at Quebec and make their way down St. Lawrence, the Great Lakes, and into the United States. They're also not negotiating the east coast of the States, which prior to the famine and prior to steam and steel ships is very important. There is a view often, and it's very, very valid because this is what people would have been taught and brought up on, is Americans coming through Ellis Island. It's iconic. The Statue of Liberty is welcoming immigrants. But Ellis Island didn't open until 1892. New York wasn't a significant port until after the 1860s. It's a deep water port and steel ships. The primary ports would have been Philadelphia, Boston, Baltimore. There's also a lot, and again, there's different patterns from different places. There's also a very, very significant Irish community uh, in Savannah, Georgia. Savannah was a major port. Baton Rouge and New Orleans were major ports. Galveston was a port that Irish would have come into. They came in on trade routes. One of the reasons why there's a lot of people go to Canada is every ship that brings people from Ireland to Canada has to have, or for North America, has to have something to come back in order to be viable. The biggest import into Ireland around the 1840s, time of the famine, was timber. Timber and lumber was coming from Canada and people were going back. You didn't have passengers that were going back and forth. They were all going one way. A lot of those come down through Michigan, come down through upstate New York, come down through uh, Illinois, Ohio. Another important factor is the biggest cohort, the biggest proportion of Irish Americans are of Ulster, Scots, Presbyterian heritage. They came largely in a period from the 1760s to the 1840s. The Catholic Southern Irish tend to come from the famine on. There are way, way more people of the Ulster Scots Presbyterian heritage because they're probably eight to ten generations more, hence more progeny. The other thing to remember is that when you're looking at family histories, the next generation tends to come after 20 years when people get married. We're conditioned now because people live older to think of a generation changing when our grandparents die in their 70s or in their 80s. But you could have great-grandparents grandparents, parents, children, four generations alive at the same time. But we tend to think not of the beginning, but of the end. So remembering all of that when you're doing it can open up exactly where to look and sometimes what to look for. Wow, that's fascinating. That's just absolutely amazing. So you do consultations, like we've said, both here at the Irish Family History Center located in the CHQ building, and you also do them online via Skype, which is really handy. So if somebody is wanting to book that service, the best place to do that would be online? On on, on our website. And what other information are they able to find there on your website? Well, we also have information on the website in terms of we regularly run a blog, and we also run courses here. Now, the courses we run are obviously based at the centre here, but we would run, we're going to do one later today. Uh, and we run introductory courses to genealogical research, and then we run a slightly more extensive one over four weeks. So we, we would run them, and we also run them all over the country uh, as one-day courses. 
So we offer that service beyond because there's always people who want to do a little bit more, particularly for somebody who's coming from the States who is making an appointment. The more information you have, the more you will learn from it. But we also take a view that we are empowering and helping and teaching people to get to the next stage, not how much can we find for you in the shortest time possible. Because a lot of the time you can do that yourself, but it's how to structure what you're doing here are places you could look that you may not have looked before and here are different ways of finding information so one really really obvious one would be somebody's looking for a birth and they have never found it and they keep looking within this area but they found the two brothers but they can't find the actual birth and let's say it's in 1870 well if somebody's birth is registered before the baptized they may not have a name so the simple thing is look for somebody called unknown or somebody with no name and then suddenly, if you knew who the parents were, but you couldn't find the birth record, that's where you could find it. So there's little things like that that we point out to people uh, as they're looking. But every consultation is different. Everybody's family is different. Everybody's family tree is different. We're always looking for different things. I'll give you an example. I once had somebody with me and they had a birth in New York, but they couldn't find a marriage. And they had looked and looked and looked. And I said, but did you look in New Jersey? No, but they didn't live in New Jersey. I said, look in New Jersey. Just trust me. So we looked in New Jersey and we found a marriage. And why was it in New Jersey? And I said, have a look at the date of the marriage and have a look at the date of birth of the child. Uh-huh. They weren't nine months apart. That's why they got married in New Jersey, because there was no questions asked, because the <laughs> priest didn't know. So sometimes you can find things like that. And it's just a case of looking at something different. Or, for instance, the county of Milwaukee in Wisconsin. 150 years ago, that was the whole southeast portion of Wisconsin. Now there are nine counties that cover that area. And Milwaukee County really only covers the city and the city precincts. So you could be looking for the record and it's not in the county where you think it is because of the timing and you have different timings. You also have state lines change. You also have uh, county lines change. And that happens to an extent in Ireland, particularly with Catholic parishes, where they expand and condense. So if you're looking at something, always look at the adjacent counties. Always look at the adjacent parishes as well. Because if you can't find it, it might just mean it's not exactly where you're looking. That is exceptional advice. So for anybody coming into Dublin, planning to do a little bit of family history research, they obviously want to visit the Epic Immigration Museum. It's an amazing experience. I took four hours in it and could have spent longer. Um, I know Epic says 90 minutes, and I just don't even know if you can absorb anything down there in 90 minutes because it's massive. But then you want to make sure that you save some time for the Irish Family History Center because there is a lot yet to learn. So Declan, you have so much terrific information, and I just want to know, if someone were to ask you at the end of a consultation, what do I need to make sure I see in Ireland? What what would you recommend I go see? Depending on what people want, and I would often tailor the answer to that question to what we have just found. I would certainly say if you want to find out more about your family, go to the county archive or the county library in the county of origin of your family. So if it's Tipperary, you do that in Tipperary. If it's in Cork, you do it in Cork. If it's in Belfast, if it's in Northern Ireland, go to Belfast. Certainly, the National Museum here in Collins Barracks has extensive 
galleries and exhibitions in relation to the more recent past. But it also has a very, very good uh, exhibition called Soldiers and Chiefs, which is about Irishmen in other people's armies, including the American Civil War and, and, and War of Independence. That's worth visiting. The National Library has a phenomenal amount of material that is of help and is of aid in relation to your family history. If anybody came from Ulster, I would always recommend go to the Ulster American Folk Park in Oma. And that is a museum of an outdoor museum, peopled by actors in costume and of vernacular housing. But what's unique about it is, and it was funded by the Mellon Bank of New York, and it was, it's, it's on the, where the original Mellon homestead was. It starts with basic housing and has all the buildings that would have been in Ireland in the 19th century from that particular area. But then on your journey, you arrive into a town. You then disembark or you embark for the United States on a ship. You end up in Boston and you start in the tenements and dust houses of Boston out into the Midwest. So you can almost walk in the footsteps of your ancestors. Oh, that one gave me chills. <laughs> Well, Declan, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. This is such incredible information, and I know that anybody who is, you know, even wanting to find a bit of their Irish ancestry is going to really enjoy this. Thank you. That was just loads of information. And if you were taking notes but you missed a few things, don't worry. All you have to do is visit the show notes for this podcast and click through. It will take you directly to Ireland Family Vacations, where you will find all of the information plus handy links to help you get started tracing your Irish ancestry. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a five-star review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Questions or comments? Just email me, jody at irelandfamilyvacations.com, and I will respond. As always, thanks so much for listening, and until next time, slangafol. <laughs>